0: Good morning. It's a good day. Some of you don't sound convinced. but believe me, it is a good, good day. I want to thank Pastor for allowing me to preach this morning. He's very generous with his pulpit. Because truth be told, you cannot have Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday Without Palm Sunday, it's that important. And it's kind of lost on us just how important this day is. I mean, typically we do celebrate it. We we make something out of it. But, I mean, truly understand this idea. You cannot have Good Friday and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ or Resurrection Sunday without today. That's how important today is. And we're going to explore just how important today is. I mean, consider that Jesus' birth is only mentioned in two of the Gospels. And that's an important day, is it not? (laughs) The miracle of Jesus' birth, but it's only in two of the Gospels. Passover week, which the Jewish people are celebrating this week, culminating Passover on Friday, it's no accident that Jesus was crucified on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. We call this week Holy Week. They call it Passover Week. This one week in its entirety is so important that it takes up a significant portion of all four Gospels. And of course, all four begin with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Matthew has 28 chapters. This begins in chapter 21. Mark has 16 chapters. This begins in chapter 11. Luke has 24 chapters. This begins in Luke 19. John has 21 chapters. His accounting begins in chapter 12. Jesus ministered for three and a half years, and yet the significant portions of every gospel Take up just one week of his life. Just one week. That's how important this whole week is. And this is why I really want us to get a hold of what this day is all about. To be able to celebrate it. To to go forward from this place and fully embrace the context of everything that is happening. Now as I said, it's in all four Gospels. But we're only really going to look at one. And everybody took a nice big breath and sigh of relief, right? We're not reading all four. We're going to hint at some of the others, but the main text that we're going to look at today is the text as Mark deals with it. So reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, from the NIV, it says this. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed after shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, again, the four Gospels are going to say slightly different things from each other. And it doesn't mean that one is right and the others are wrong. It just means that some of them remembered it a little bit differently as it happened. But the context, the full flow, everything that happened is as we have read it here in Mark. And what is being declared here and what has to be emphasized here is the truth that Jesus is Lord. Now, we say that a lot, don't we? We say that a lot. And in some respects, as it is our main confession of faith, because the Bible says at one point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's just those of us have, as Christians have decided to do that before Judgment Day. If you get to Judgment Day, it's a little too late. <laughs> All right? All right. But let's understand what it meant to the Jews because for them to say that Jesus is Lord means something totally different from our own understanding. Things get lost in translation very easily. You know, it wasn't long after President Jimmy Carter had finished his work in office that he went to Japan and was giving a lecture to some college students and he decided to, in order to break the ice and relax everybody that he was gonna tell a joke. And by his own admission, it wasn't a really funny joke at that. But he tells the joke to the audience, and the interpreter interprets it. But the interpreter gave just a really curt, short, I mean, it should have taken him longer. And the crowd roared with laughter. And so both of these things kind of caught President Carter a little bit off guard. So afterwards, he went to the interpreter and kind of had to work it out of the guy. What did you say? What did you tell them? Well, the interpreter had gotten lost in the joke and didn't quite know what to say or or how to say it, so he had simply told the audience, President Carter told a funny story, everybody must laugh. Things get lost in translation. Things get lost when we don't understand perspective and meaning. And for us, as American Gentiles... There is a lot to be understood about what it is when these people are receiving Jesus into Jerusalem, why they are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna and the high. What does that entail? It eludes us and it escapes us. I mean, we're Americans. We're all about democracy, right? We're, we're not into people who are into kinging. That's not our thing. You know, we, lately we've had the big interview by oprah of harry and megan and everything that's going on over there and the royals and you know it may be interesting but americans tend to say keep that stuff on the other side of the pond we're, we're uh the kind of people who like to say you're not the boss of me that's our society right you're not our boss you don't tell us what to do we're free we're, we're at liberty But to understand what the Jews are saying and what's going on in this instance, we have to understand the mindset that loves monarchy, that looks for kingship, that looks for that kind of authority. Because that's what they're doing as Jesus comes into the city. And Jesus starts the whole thing off. Remember, it's been three and a half years of him moving about the countryside, preaching from city to city, and not just preaching, right? The miracles that he's doing, he's healing the sick, he's feeding people by the thousands with a simple lunch. He's doing all these things that people would anticipate from their Messiah, the Jewish people are looking for a king to come and to save them and to deliver them and to do works of God. They're looking for this man of God to come. And Jesus sends two disciples into the city. He had used the word Lord before, more often than not in reference to God, but on a couple of occasions in reference to himself. But when he sends a couple of his disciples into the city to get the colt. He gives them very specific instructions, and we read it. They are to say what to those who may question them? The Lord needs it, the Lord. Jesus just dropped a massive clue to everybody in the city. He's doing something when he says that. He is declaring himself to be the Lord. It was few and far between as Jesus traveled and preached that he really revealed himself to folks. The first person he revealed himself to as Messiah was the woman at the well. But more often than not, he told people, don't publicize it, don't don't say who I am. And in fact, when he cast demons out of of people, the demons would say what? You're the son of God. He would say, you be quiet. But on this occasion right here, after three and a half years, He's being very deliberate about what he's doing. When he says, you tell them, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And even as was alluded to in our children's message, that set the city off. It set them off. I mean, we tend to not think about how fast word travels because nowadays we got our phones. If something's going on, we all get the ding. Okay, yeah, I know. So we kind of forget how fast word of mouth can work. And remember, the Jews are getting ready to celebrate Passover. So anybody who's anybody and serves God the way they're supposed to serve God is in the city of Jerusalem. That's where you were supposed to go for the Passover. The city is packed to overflowing with everybody there to celebrate the feast and festival. And it does not take long for the entire city to find out that The Lord is here. The Lord is here. Jesus set that city on edge, and they responded, responded. By the time the disciples got that donkey back outside of the city, and they had put their cloaks on it for Jesus to sit on, the streets were lined, lined with people, shouting, for Jesus because their faith was raised. God doesn't do anything by coincidence. As I already mentioned, it's no coincidence that Jesus died on Passover and the people are expecting something to happen on this Passover because the Lord is here and it's made very evident by their declarations you know, let's take this apart and, and see what these phrases mean as they're shouting them out. Shouting them out. And as Pastor already said, Hosanna is a one-word declaration of praise and prayer. When you say Hosanna, you're saying, save us. Save us. That is the first declaration they made. Save us. Here comes this guy in a donkey, and the whole city is shouting, save us. Save us. We want you. We need you. And they go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that? That is a declaration of victory. A victory. That is a shout for joy and triumph. And the symbols that they're using during this parade help declare that at the same time. Because the palm branch is is a symbol of victory. You wave the palm branch when you've won. You get the palm branch when you've won. That is your symbol of victory. And they're laying all those things out in the road saying, you are the victor. You are the one who can win for us. We want you to win. We want you to win. And they carry on. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. This is recognition of Jesus as the rightful heir and ruler to the kingdom of David. He is king. They're saying, save us because you are the victor and you are our king. You deserve to sit on the throne. And that's what's happening when they're throwing their garments in the road to lay their garments before the donkey that Jesus is riding on is to say, we give you homage. We pledge our allegiance to you. That's what they're doing. They're pledging their allegiance to this guy who they are declaring to be not just king, but also Messiah. Going all the way back to Abraham. In fact, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we have been given a promise of a savior. But for the Jews, it was a specific idea of a Messiah sent from God to renew their nation and to restore them as a people to himself. And of course, that last line, Hosanna in the highest is an expression, save us and let this prayer be carried to the throne of God. Let God himself hear it. I declare this in the presence of God. God, come down here and see what's going on. There's an invitation for the fullness of deity to participate in what we are doing here today. This is no small day, folks. This is no small part. When Jesus says, the Lord needs it. The people respond in such a way so as to enthrone him. And, of course, that's the plan. That's the plan. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, Matthew 21, verse 4 says, Say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I don't know about you, but all the times I've ever seen royalty paraded, it's usually with a very big retinue. They've got guards. They've got soldiers around them. Maybe they're riding in some kind of gilded carriage or some kind of really nice car. Jesus is on, he's on a donkey. He's on a donkey. A donkey is a symbol of humility. Matthew says he's coming in Gentleness. You know, I've heard it said that the only problem with God is that he thinks he's God. That he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, the way he wants, which, theologically speaking, is technically true, but God never does anything outside of his nature. And it is in his nature, even as we see it in Jesus, to be humble. And I, that makes my brain hurt to think of the idea that God is humble. <laughs> Those two words don't seem to go together in the same sentence very well, do they? When you think of God, you think of power and might and authority and glory, and, and this is, God is humble. I mean, my, my brain crashes with that idea. It's like you know, getting the blue screen of death, fatal error, file not found. I cannot process that idea. He's not on a horse. He's not on a chariot. He's not being carried, sitting on a chair on the shoulders of everybody else. He's on a donkey, riding in humbly. And he's doing that because he has a plan. The unfortunate thing is that everybody else has a plan too. And everybody else's plans are not necessarily going to line up with his plans. The people are wanting to crown Jesus king right there that day. If they could have had their way, they would have done it. And it wouldn't have been the first occasion. John chapter 6 tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And immediately after that, it tells us the people tried to crown him king. Right then and there. So it's not the first time that this has happened. They want him so desperately to be king. They have been under centuries of oppression and the rule of others, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans, centuries of oppression. They want to be free. They want their own nation back, and they want their Messiah to do it. And on this day, they are not only declaring him king, but they are doing things that demonstrate their desire. We pledge allegiance to you. You are our Lord. Be our king. Their plan is to enthrone Jesus. Now, as you read the rest of the story through the week, you see that Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple, kicks out all those who are selling things, uh, charging folks massive amounts of money, taking advantage of the people, kicks them all out. And that does excite the people. And he debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, and he keeps shutting them down. And that delights the people too. And he's doing miracles and signs and wonders. He's healing the sick in the temple. And that delights them too. These are all good things. But this is it isn't the thing they want the most. The thing they want the most is for Jesus. To take the throne, to depose Herod, to kick out the Roman governor, and to elevate himself and be king. That's their plan. And of course, we know the end of the story. Did that happen? Or maybe we don't know the end of the story. Did that happen? No, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. But there's another group of people that has a plan as well. And it is the religious leaders. And we know that the religious leader's plan is to kill Jesus. And that's just shocking to think that if Israel are the people of God, then we could say that the religious leaders are the people of God of the people of God. Right? And their plan is murder and not just Jesus only. Because after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible tells us people were expressing faith in Jesus because of that miracle. So uh, John eleven forty three 43 through 37 and John 12, 9 through 11, tell us that not only did the religious leaders want to kill Jesus, but they needed to kill Lazarus too. They needed to get rid of the miracle in order to deny the miracle worker. Their plan was to kill Jesus. And of course, I, I just... <laughs> I can't help but rejoice. As a Christian, okay, I'll have to say, I get a lot of glee about, what I'm about over what I'm about to read to you, okay? You've heard the expression, you mad now, bro? I mean, what does that entail? It means you're goading somebody, right? Something happened that they didn't like, you mad now? How about you, you mad now? Everything that Jesus does during the week, it's just going to get under the religious leader's skin over and over. It's so like he's poking him right in the eye. And I, like I said, I gotta say, it makes me laugh. <laughs> it makes me happy. These guys wanna murder him and he's just giving it to them over and over. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 17. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Matthew's play on words. When the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, they were indignant. How can you be indignant at wonderful things? How can you get mad when somebody gets healed? I mean, you got to be some kind of hard-hearted, nasty person to get upset when somebody who's blind receives their sight. You are cold. You are some kind of cult. And you're the priests. You're the teachers of the law. And you are indignant because somebody's getting healed. And you're upset because the kids are running around saying, Hosanna. This is a good thing. Even the kids know this is a good thing. The kids got one over on you. Luke tells us in chapter 19, verses 39 through 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The teachers of the law wanted the people to stop shouting what they were shouting. Tell these folks to be quiet. Tell them to stop. If I tell them to stop, the stones are gonna shout. So, no, I'm not going to tell him to stop. I'm not going to do it. He just keeps goading them on and on and on. John twelve seventeen through 19 tells us, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And that is a key point into the heart of the Pharisees. What was it that they were afraid of? What was it that they were worried about? And what was was it that drove them to a place where they wanted to kill Jesus? And again, spoiler alert, Jesus does get killed, in case you didn't know. The Pharisees and the Sadducees made a point of bringing him up for trial and having him executed on a cross. In case you didn't know, Jesus died on a cross. But there's something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't understand. I imagine that Friday, even though it was Passover and they were supposed to be home and not working, I imagine that every last one of them went home thinking, look what we did, finally, finally. We accomplished this. We did this. We killed that guy. We finally got rid of that guy. He's gone. We did this. We accomplished our plan. But see, the people weren't the only ones with a plan. And the Pharisees weren't the only ones with a plan, because Jesus had his own plan. And everything that happened and transpired, everything that happened and transpired didn't happen because somebody else wanted it to. It happened because Jesus wanted it to. That's why it all happened. John chapter 10 is the passage of the good shepherd. Wonderful passage. Read read the whole thing in its entirety later. But chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 say this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now, some of you may not like this, but I don't know how other, I don't know how other else to say this, except that Jesus is bad. (laughs) You know, Jesus is bad. It's like he's saying, you can't touch this. You cannot touch this. I'm the boss. You think you're crucifying me. You think your plan has been enacted. You think you've accomplished what your goal is. But nobody takes my life. Nobody. If I die, it's because I chose to die. And to put the finishing point on it, not only am I going to choose to die, but I'm going to choose to raise myself again. Beat that. Top that. You're celebrating on Friday, but just wait. Because in three days, I'll be back. I'll be back. everybody's got their plans. Everybody's trying to accomplish what they want to accomplish. I want to do what I want to do. God always has his own plan. And I tell you, it's always better than you think. Always better than what you think. He can do more than what we're waiting for. It's something you can never even have considered what his plans are. This day, this week, It all runs together. And as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it's because it's his plan to do so in his timing the way he wants to do it. Nothing is going to happen outside of his design. And understand this. Plans are always built on expectations. Plans are always built on expectations. What are the expectations? Again, the the people's expectation is that when they usher Jesus into the city, he's gonna make for the governor's palace and he's gonna give him the boot. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. I'm here. They're expecting then that he's gonna go to Herod's place and take the crown off of that pretender's head and assume it for himself. He's going to be king. That's what the people are expecting. We've already declared you the victor. We've already declared our allegiance to you. Why are you going to the temple first? Okay, maybe, maybe the next day he's going to, oh, he went back to the temple again. He keeps going back to the temple. When is he going to go to Herod's? When is he going to go to Pilate's? When is he going to assume the throne? I mean, the miracles are neat. Don't get me wrong. That stuff is really cool, but that's not why we ushered you into the city. We're expecting you to be the king. We're expecting you to take the throne. So it, is it any wonder that come Friday, the people whose expectations have been sorely disappointed are willing to go along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his crucifixion? Now, certainly there may have been those, as the Bible tells us, who were paid by the Pharisees to call for Jesus' execution. And there may have been some who were willing to go along and call for his execution. But what about the rest of them? You'll notice this. None of them came to Jesus' aid. Nobody said, wait a minute, this is our king, stop. Nobody interceded on his behalf. Come Friday, everybody was either willing to, willing to participate in his crucifixion or willing to let it happen. That's where they were. They were either virulently declaring crucify or they're willing to say, well, well we thought. Now maybe the next guy. In the meantime, phew, boy, I'm glad I'm not you. Better you than me. They let it happen. Five days prior, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it's, ah, well, okay, maybe next time. Their expectations sorely disappointed, which is why they were willing to just let it all go. Just to give it up, throw in the towel, say, this wasn't worth it. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. The religious leaders, again, they're validating what they're looking for from Jesus. What they expected from Jesus was for him to come and validate them. Because he didn't validate them, they validated themselves by crucifying Jesus Christ. As you read through the Gospels, you see these occasions where Jesus is ministering to people, undesirables, as it were. He's out there with the sinners. And the Pharisees ask it over and over again. Why are you with them? You should be with us. Messiah is supposed to be over here, not over there. They were expecting Jesus to validate their ministry. But time after time after time, he simply denied them. And in fact, he did more than just deny them. On occasion, they expected him to validate their law. Jesus, you keep breaking the law. You keep breaking the law. And he's saying, no, that's your law. That's not my law. That's what you say. That's not what I say. Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath, and that would make them angry. It would make them angry. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? You got six other days to heal people. Don't do anything on Sunday. And Jesus would tell them, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I make the rules about the Sabbath. What's it better to do? Do something good or something bad on the Sabbath? Their expectations for for the Messiah was that he would be in their camp and that they could control him. They wanted to control him. And like I said, They tried to lay down the rules. Jesus heals six days of the week. Take a seventh one off. Jesus, do your preaching on six days of the week. Take one off. They wanted Jesus to obey them. That's why they said, tell your disciples to stop saying what they're saying. You do what we say. And Jesus said, no, thanks. Right? Right? Their expectation was that Jesus would validate them and obey him. You want God to obey you. That's what you're saying. And here's the truth about expectations. It isn't necessarily bad to want something. It's okay to want something. And in fact, I used to tell my kids this all the time. Wanting isn't necessarily getting. And they hated to hear that. Because that, mean, that meant, if I said that, that I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. Wanting isn't necessarily getting. Dad, I want that toy. Dad, I want to go to McDonald's. Okay, well, wanting isn't necessarily getting. <laughs> that means no. It's okay to want something. You know what? If you want that thing bad enough, save up for it yourself. Don't expect somebody else to pay for it. If you want to do that thing badly enough, well, go ahead and do it yourself. Don't expect somebody else to do it for you. But understand at the same time, just because you want something to be or to happen doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be or happen. And we have to train ourselves to not allow our expectations to run away because when they run away, then we find ourselves in the same place that the religious leaders were in, Or that the people were in. And then we end up missing out on what God has for us. Because as I said earlier, everything that the people wanted and then everything that the people planned for did not come to pass. It did not come to pass. Only Jesus' plan came to pass. And those were born of his expectations. His expectations. And what was it that Jesus expected? Luke 19, 41 through 44 tells us what Jesus expected. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The last portion of that passage is Jesus prophesying the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70. But it's that opening line that tells us what Jesus' expectations were. And on this greatest day of his earthly ministry, I mean, let's be clear. Today is the greatest day, his most joyful day, his most outrageous day of his earthly ministry. Not his life, because certainly his his resurrection kind of tops this day. His ascension tops that. His return is going to top that. I mean, there's some other great days in Jesus' life, but of his earthly ministry, his three and a half years, this was the most joyful and important day because the people had received him as Messiah. And even as they do so, he says to them, if only you knew. And he said it weeping weeping. His expectation was, I want you to come. I want you to come. Because I can give you peace. I can give you peace. If only you knew the peace that I could give you. But it's hidden from you. It is hidden. It's hidden by your own plans. And it's hidden by your own expectations. It's hidden by the desires of your own heart and what you want and what you believe and what you're not getting. It's hidden. Jesus' expectation is come, come, because I can give you peace. And his invitation echoes down the decades and the centuries and the millennia to us today. His invitation is still the same, his expectation is still the same. It hasn't changed, the plan worked. His plan worked. He laid down his life and he took it up again for us so that we can be saved, so we can find eternal life, so we can be free, so we can find peace, so we can find peace. I mean, all you gotta do is just turn on the TV or the radio or look something up on the internet for five minutes to know this world does not have any peace. At all. And if you're looking to find peace anywhere in this world, you will never find it. Ever. Anywhere. You might have fleeting moments of happiness. You might have some occasional moments of serendipity where where something happens to you or for you that gives you the briefest glimpse of some kind of joy. But it's not going to last. It won't. Jesus and Jesus alone can give us peace. Even in the midst of all the difficulty and strife that we see going on, he can give us peace. So as we get ready to close today, I want us to do a little bit of an exercise here. If you got a palm branch, go ahead and take it in your hands. Because the question today is, how are you going to respond? How do you respond to this knowledge Of who Jesus is. How do you respond to this idea of his death and resurrection for you? How do you respond to the idea of him wanting to give you peace? We can respond the way the crowd did, joyful at first and indifferent later. We can respond the way the religious leaders did, with indignancy and animosity and hatred or we can respond the way that Jesus invites us to respond, to call on his name, to seek after him, to ask him to save us. Because even though I am an American and I am quote unquote free, I have a king. I have a king that I love. And my allegiance is to him and to him only. My declaration as a Gentile, foreign from the Jewish people, is the same declaration that they declared this day, all those years ago. I still need saving. Don't you? I still need victory. Don't you? I still need my king. I still need God in the highest to hear me. So if you have a palm, go ahead and take it in your hand. And I want you to feel free to respond any way that you want to. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to shout, shout. If you want to whisper, whisper. If you don't have a palm, raise your hands. Put your hand over your heart. However you want to respond. But as a group today, what we're going to do is we're going to simply read and say what they said all those years ago. And once we've done that, then I'll close us in a word of prayer. And then Pastor Tracy will come for a time of prayer. But let us, let us declare on this good day the same thing that they declared all those years ago. Go ahead and pull that up for us if you would. The path, here we go. Starting with Hosanna. And what does Hosanna mean? Save us. Save us. Let's declare it together. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus says we remember this day. We, are, we, just, we feel so good for you. <laughs> we really do. What a good day for you. You truly were and are king of Israel. And not just King of Israel, Lord, but King of all. And we hail you as such. And as we come to you today, the word Hosanna rings from our souls. Save us. Save us. Save us and draw us to yourself. Through your own weeping and through your own desire and expectation, with your arms open wide, we come to you. We come to you our King, and our peace. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And we pray in Jesus' name.